Hey, and welcome to a new Liberty's Lantern. Today, you'll notice that we're changing our format a little bit. We're actually now doing pre-recorded shows. That's going to allow us to do more conversations, more recordings, and we're going to be talking about more things about Liberty. So, I look forward to that. The other thing you'll also notice is that we are now cross-posting these videos. They're going to be on Facebook and on YouTube, so I'm really excited about that. We've been getting a larger and larger feedback and viewership every single week, so I'd really like to thank everyone who is uh, viewing and sharing these videos and getting the message out about Liberty's Lantern and Liberty overall. Uh, I'd also like to say uh, that this week's topic is going to be one that I am not looking forward to, but I feel that we really need to discuss. Uh, I don't like to discuss people or, you know, things that uh, have happened here at Liberty's Lantern. We like to talk about uh, what can happen, where we can take Liberty uh, and not dwell too much on what has already been done, but build on it. Uh, this week, we're actually going to talk about uh, Donald Trump and the meetings that he has had with foreign leaders. And can we start to get a more accurate picture of what his overall international policy is going to be over the next four years? Because it's very important. Uh, people are throwing around a lot of terms like isolationist or imperialist. Uh, we're going to take a look into that. So let's get started and let's have a good conversation today. this recording, so far, Donald Trump has met with uh, May, the um, Prime Minister of England. He has met with uh, Abe, the Prime Minister of Japan, Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, Kinney, the Prime Minister of Ireland, and now also Angela Merkel. So he's actually kind of made his way around a lot of the powers of the Western world, um, both major and minor. And there are some overreaching trends. Uh, first of all, his format's very fixed, and I think that's probably actually a good thing. He likes to invite them in. There's a, a meet and greet on the steps, which is covered by the press, then a closed meeting, either a luncheon or a dinner, uh, then a uh, wrap-up press conference, which is pretty standard. I'm not going to say that that's anything crazy. Uh, of course, uh, the Japanese Prime Minister, also being an avid golfer, got to spend some additional time with Donald Trump and uh, actually got to uh, go play a couple of rounds of golf. So that was great. You know, hey, you know, they're world leaders. They need some downtime too. Arguably, you know, people say he has too much downtime, but that's an argument for other people to have, and we're not going to talk about it here. 
So, the two things people are talking about a lot are isolationism, imperialism, or what? So, let's define isolationism. According to Webster's, isolationism as a governmental policy is the policy or doctrine of isolating one's nation from the affairs of other nations by declining to enter into alliances, foreign economic commitments, international agreements, etc., seeking to devote the entire efforts of one's country to its own achievement and remain at peace by avoiding foreign entanglements and responsibilities. Yes, Donald Trump has done some of these things. Um, or has inclinated that they, he's going to head in some of these directions, i.e. the wall. I mean, the wall would be a great example of isolationism. Uh, also, you have the entire discussion of, <clears throat> excuse me, of America first, which could become an isolationistic policy, but might not. We don't know where it's headed yet because we haven't even really gotten to see anything about what America first really means as far as an international policy is concerned. So there's a lot of questions about where this is going to head, what's going to happen with this, but all indications, especially with the foreign leaders that he's meeting with, the fact that he's talking about NATO, the fact that he's talking about the European Union, and a lot of people don't agree with a lot of the things that he's saying, and a lot do, more importantly, the nations that he's talking about don't agree, but whatever. That, again, is a conversation for another time. Um, but every indication that we're seeing so far would indicate that we're not headed towards a period of isolationism. More or less, uh, we're looking at something else. So let's take a look at the definition of imperialism. The imperialism, according to Webster's, is the policy of extending the rule or authority of an empire or nation over foreign countries and or of acquiring the holding colonies and dependencies. Advocacy of imperial or sovereign interests over the interests of dependent states Imperial government rule by an emperor or an empress. So there's a lot more of an argument for this. Uh, we're going to look at, are we going in the direction of a 21st century empire? Are we looking at something new or a development of things that already exist? And my research might scare you. Uh, we are headed, in all intents and purposes, from what I can tell, into an imperialism. However, it's an imperialism we have never on this earth seen before. Yes, it's going to be driven by the government. However, it's more corporate-based. 
it's a corporate imperialistic society where the United States will use corporations as tendrils and current existing alliances. First of all, many, not all, but many of the nations that Trump has already met with are from NATO. So I'm going to share my screen over here. So these are the percentages of the NATO budget that every single country is responsible for. And every single one of these countries is paying this amount. When you look at it, and these are only for the operating budgets. These are to maintain strategic command locations. These are personnel. Uh, this is all the day-to-day -day expense of actually running NATO. This is not the military. This is not the investment that's in, uh, incurred. Nothing. This is just the percentages of breakout for running NATO, which all told is just around the level. Well, uh, let's scroll down. The first part is the civil budget, and this is all of the building expenses, uh, civilian staff, and you're looking at 234 million. The military budget. Military budget is a portion of 35 separate budgets that are all combined, and it's only a small portion, and that is 1.29 billion. We spend a lot more, but very little of these budgets are actually considered NATO-based. And then there's the Security Investment Program, which comes out to be 655 million. Joint funding, which falls outside of these percentage breakouts, uh, and then other funding as well. But it's those three numbers that you have to add up and then break out to these percentages right here. And that's the requirement, the financial requirement of NATO. And all of these nations are actually meeting these. This is not a question or, or anything like this. This is part of the NATO agreement, the NATO alliance, and every single one of these nations is actually funding it. It comes out to be about $2.5 billion split up among 28 countries, all contributing to pay off that $2.5 billion. This is a, 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 this isn't a question. No one, no one's questioning this aspect. What people are questioning is in 2014, NATO came together and after all the increased terrorism and all of the increased threats to Western nations, the potential saber rattling of Russia, a whole host of integers that, you know, everyone came together on. In 2014, it was an agreement that 
every single nation is going to start spending 2% of their GDP on their own military. No money was going to go to the United States, nothing. And in 2014, under President Obama, the agreement was that they had to get up to this 2% threshold within 10 years. They had a decade to slowly increase their own military budgets up to the 2% threshold for what would be considered NATO applied. NATO applied is anything that uh, is for solely for defense, uh, not a ex uh, uh, exterior force power. Uh, so things that would actually qualify for this is Coast Guard, uh, Border Patrols, stuff like that. Uh, also that would be included in this 2% would be anti-missile systems. Uh, you would have also uh, expenditure for um, uh, international sharing of intelligence uh, systems. Uh, you could actually get a lot of things into this 2% or things that directly protect the North Atlantic or anything that would be actually encompassed by this treaty. So this would be also uh, sonar listening posts. Uh, this would be anything that you could really come up with that would be a betterment for all of these nations. So. This was established in 2014, and they had till 2028. Actually, it was established in 2014, went into effect in 2015, and they would have until 2025 to accomplish this 2% threshold. And most nations have actually shown a great increase in their spending. One of the few exceptions is Iceland, but they don't even have a military so, yeah, they don't, they're finding it hard to actually start creating this ball rolling. They have actually decreased their overall spending uh, down to 0.1% of their national GDP. But all other nations, uh, especially France, Germany, especially with the increase of terrorist attacks in these nations, have seen... Uh, growth, uh, substantial growth in many occasions uh, to present, pro, to actually achieve this 2%. So, <clears throat> I had it up here. Oh, and I'm sorry, I had the screen up and I don't know where it went. Well, whatever, the, there are five nations that are actually spending the required 2% or more already. The United States leads the pack at three, uh, three point something percent. Uh, other, there were uh, four other countries that were in it. Uh, here we go. Here's the, here's the graphic that I was looking for, and I'm sorry about that. So spending on the GDP, obviously, like, like I was saying, the U.S. is at 3.61%, Greece at 2.38%, which is actually shocking to see that they're on this list, that they're already achieving their 
GDP spend rate because they're in such financial difficulty. Obviously, the United Kingdom uh, is already there at 2.21%. Estonia, small country, uh, but hey, they are already there at 2.16%. Poland screeches in at 2%, and then you start having France, Turkey, Germany, Italy, Canada, and the list goes all the way down, ending with Iceland, like I said, at 0.1%. So the thing is, it's 2017. This went into effect in 2015, and for Trump to actually start making these countries beholden to this level after only two years when they were granted 10 years is kind of ludicrous, but I understand. And remember, we're spending 3.61% of our GDP, which is only a portion of our total military spending, but this is only material that is applicable to NATO. So we spend a lot more on military than this. And remember, this is also only for defensory uh, spending. This is what that's actually equating to. The exterior projection abilities do not get calculated into this. This is merely a defensive or protectionary spending. So now a lot of these nations, because they live so deeply into NATO territory like France and Germany and Italy, most of what they actually do spend on military, probably about 80% actually does qualify for this 2%. Uh, other countries like Estonia with Russia being on the board, uh, probably also 80 to 90% of their entire military budget actually does qualify. So it's understandable where a lot of these are already achieving the spending agreements that they had with NATO. So, but it's kind of unfair to start holding them to the fire when the agreement was 10 years and we're only two years into it. That's neither here nor there. NATO has never had an agreement in it, and you can go over and read the entire NATO Accord if you wish. Uh, I, I spent about an hour and a half, and I went through the entire thing, and I, I'll grant it, I didn't read it to the point, I mean, it's a, the document and all the subsequent documents are rather long and circuitous, but going through them and spending almost two hours reading them, uh, I couldn't find anything, and I mean anything, on national reimbursement. There are 14 pages on how taxation is going to work between receiving nations and sending nations, but there is no mention of remuneration for troops stationed. So the fact that Donald Trump is now starting to demand remuneration for the U.S. troops stationed abroad in these NATO member countries is, in effect, starting to apply American imperialistic tendencies. We are now starting to treat them as though they are puppet states instead of 
fellow sovereign nations. The generals over at NATO command, the U.S. generals in NATO command, are even backing up a lot of these U.S. Uh, non-U.S. nations in, in confirming that there is nothing in NATO that says that they are under any obligation to pay us for anything. It is solely in the best interest of the United States to have a free and democratic Europe. So that's why we're there. We're not there because we're trying to extort money from these people, but that's the end result of what's actually happening. Now, so we have imperialism through reinterpretation of existing treaties. We also have uh, corporate imperialism, which is a new type of imperialism that I can't find anything on, but it's the best term that I can actually come up with. Whereas we have corporations that we are trying to control through tariffs and through taxation and all of these other different methodologies to bring jobs back to the United States, which is, I guess, a good thing, but not the right way to do it. We should actually create more conducive business environments in the United States. But hey, that's once again a topic for another time. But with all of these different tariffs to pay for the wall or to bring jobs home or whatever the tagline of the week is, we are using our corporations as power brokers. These corporations are all headquartered in the United States and are beholden to our laws, but have manufacturing or distribution systems throughout the world. We're now using these systems to make other countries beholden. If we have corporations, let's say uh, one of the first corporations actually to move their manufacturing operations to China was Delta. Uh, not the airline, uh, the faucet manufacturer. And if we all of a sudden take new corporate measures to start trying to force them to come to make their products back in the United States, which, by the way, we have not started doing. So I don't want anybody saying that, you know, we're, we're already starting to do that. Uh, it would put China into a bad economic position. So we can now all of a sudden force China by having our corporation's manufacturing capabilities over there. We can force China to actually kind of play ball a little bit better because now we're forcing their financial ability through our corporations to submit to our wills and ways. Hasn't been done. Could it happen? The writing is on the wall but it hasn't started yet. The, and the reason that I say the writing's on the wall is because we're doing it to companies like Carrier, where we're putting pressure on them because they want to move their manufacturing plants to Mexico. And the reason they want to move their plants to Mexico is because they are working with refrigerants. And the EPA in this country 
is very restrictive on how to handle, store, and dispose of refrigerant materials, especially during the manufacturing process. So we're causing their business to be more expensive by protecting ourselves, which is a smart thing. I'm not going to say that it isn't should be done by the own, their own will of corporation and not by government structure, but whatever. Uh, they're forced to actually relocate their manufacturing operations to Mexico, where they have far more relaxed restrictions and policies on the handling, uh, on the handling of refrigerant products. So now, we're talking about imposing tariffs and all of these things on these companies. So now the manufacturing process being relocated to China or to Mexico in this case, I'm sorry, misspoke there, is no longer financially feasible for them because they're going to be paying more in taxes and tariffs of importing their goods that they're being forced to manufacture outside of our country due to environmental regulation. So much so now they are spending millions of dollars on automating their plants to comply with EPA regulations, which are going to put thousands of Americans out of work anyway, because now factory robots are going to be replacing factory workers. Yeah. So the end result is actually still going to be the same. We're just forcing them to do it in a different way. And the cost of materials are still going to go up because we're not only forcing them to stay here, we're forcing them to retool and comply to new regulations. Some of which are even by environmentalist or industry insiders say that are excessive. And if an environmentalist says that it's excessive, it's probably excessive. But hey, that's not for me to say. These are people at the EPA who are dictating this. Again, a topic for another time. You start putting that all together and now you are taking away the economic power of Mexico through U.S. corporations. So it's actually kind of a shared GDP aspect, whereas the actual manufacturing process improves the GDP of Mexico, while as the retail or the actual selling of the final goods helps the U.S. economy, even though it wasn't manufactured in the U.S., but the final good is then still added to the GDP of the United States because it's a U.S. corporation, even though it was manufactured outside of the United States. <clears throat> so, global economics, what can I say? Uh, so, you're actually hurting not only the Mexican economy, but you're also hurting the U.S. economy because you're taking away profit margin or you're unjustly increasing the cost of a good 
to force them or shoehorn them into producing in the United States, which may have the reverse capability of not helping but hindering our own economy by not letting business do what business does best, and that is conduct business. It's tough. It's really tough. Imperialism has proven through time and memoriam to not work in the long run. And in such a fast-paced world that we live in today, once we start down a certain path, we may not be able to change tracks before it is too late. The Roman Empire, which failed because it was too large for a centralized government, took almost a thousand years to fall. The British Empire, which failed because it was so decentralized that the remote governments started to demand their own independence, failed in 350 years. The U.S. arguably has been set upon this path of corporate and governmental imperialism now for the last 80 years. And if we have the sharp uptake in imperialistic policy that we are seeing the writing on the wall on the, with the Trump administration, we may not last much longer. We are a nation based on liberty. We are a nation based on law. Every single one of our predecessors in empire have started the same way, but dramatically fell through corruption, through inability. And to think that we would be any different, to think that we would be the exception to the rule, is the most egocentric thing that we as a nation could ever do. We must stand on the shoulders of giants to see the horizon. We cannot be the giant ourselves, or we will never see the light of day, or the light of dawn. Sorry, I'm misquoting him. And that's all I have to say about that. I hope that I've given you some great ideas and maybe different directions to research some stuff in. I hope that I've given you some food for thought. Uh, once again, like always, I do not have the... Uh, all of my opinions are not the opinions of the Libertarian Party. In fact, actually... My own opinions may not even be my own opinions sometimes. No, I'm kidding. They are. Uh, but, uh, no, it's, it's concerning. I only pose one possible solution, or just the enlightenment of the problem. 
I may not be intelligent enough to actually pose any solutions. But if you know the problem, you might come up with something. And that's what I'm kind of hoping for on this one, because I don't know if there is a good solution. I hope that you've enjoyed this, and I hope to be talking to you again soon, and hopefully on happier topics. So you have a great one. Enjoy your week, and we shall see you next week with a new topic for Liberty's Lantern. <laughs>